0: Welcome to the Classics Podcast, Reclamation, an intervention in the current conversation around theater history where we recenter and uplift Black writers and storytellers, both the celebrated and the forgotten. As Brittany mentioned last week, there are so many ways to look at a movement. One of them is to examine the work that was made at that time. This week, we want to take a deep dive into what scholar Daphne Brooks called a Pan-African extravaganza, the 1903 musical in Dahomey. Now, the actual West African empire was called Dahomey, but you'll hear us refer to the location as Dahomey, which seems to be the title of the show that has been passed down over the years. So we wanted to explore the production and also the world beyond what audiences might have seen on stage. How did these artists create their work? What were their ambitions and process? And how does that connect to the art we make today? We decided to get together one afternoon and chat about Indahomi. So you'll get to meet the rest of our intrepid team. In addition to Brittany and Arminda, there's me, Awoye Tempo, along with AJ Muhammad and Dominique Ryder. Hey, what's up everybody? Hey, hey. Hi, everybody. All right, so I thought it would be fun challenge to see, does anybody have a fun way to describe this play in one sentence?
1: I feel like all I keep thinking is like, I'ma get mine. (laughs) That's like, everybody's like, it's not quite upward mobility, but kinda, you know, it's like, let me get mine. That's mine. So I would say that it is a play,
2: made famous by Burt Williams and George Walker. The first hit black play on Broadway in 1903. It is part of the transition from, um, from minstrelsy into a black musical theater. It is about, this is hard. It is about a pair of frenemies <laughs> who, um, who get caught up in a uh, back to Africa um, scheme and find themselves on the road to and then in Dahomey, that's it. It's a road
0: trip show. (laughs) There was an attempt, I think a really very valiant, amazing attempt by uh, the great A.J. Muhammad to summarize what the play was about. In Dahomey follows two down on their luck black men Shylock Homestead and Rareback Pinkerton, who have recently arrived in Boston from the South and are roped into being hired to find a small casket that belongs to a Floridian man named Cicero Lightfoot, who is the president of the Dahomey Colonialization Society. Lightfoot is planning to emigrate with his family to the country of Dahomey in West Africa. A syndicate called Get the Coin also has its eyes on the Colonization Society's plan to relocate to Dahomey as part of a profit-making scheme. Homestead and Pinkerton head to Gatorville, Florida, along with a cast of supporting characters where they converge at the estate of Cicero Lightfoot.
1: Sounds like the plot of like a rat race type movie.
0: Here's an excerpt from Act One between the characters Moses Lightfoot, an agent of the Dahomey Colonization Society, and Henry Stamfield, a letter carrier and employee of the intelligence office. In the scene, Moses discusses the colonization society's plan to emigrate to Dahomey, where they expect to make lucrative deals with the Dahomeyans to bring modern technology, transportation, and other businesses to the country. Stamfield is skeptical. George Reeder, who runs the intelligence office, also joins in the conversation.
3: I do think the colored race is the biggest set of fools I've ever cast my optics against. Hello? Mose, what are you kicking about? Ain't kicking at all. Got both feet resting right on the ground where they belong. I was just naturally disgusted with the frivolities of the colored population of this country.
4: You shouldn't let trifles annoy you. I'll dare say you'll find the population of Dehomi quite as much a source of annoyance as the colored population of this country. Your exalted opinion of the ideal life to be found in a barbarous country is beyond my comprehension.
3: It's all right for you, son, to argue that way because you expect to live and die amongst these white folks here in the United States. But the Colonization Society that leaves this country for Dahomey takes a different view of the matter. In the first place, we investigated the country and found out just what's what.
4: In other words, the existing conditions.
3: Yes. Everything points to success. They tell me that gold and silver in Dahomey is plentiful, as the whiskey is on election day in Boston. The climate's fine, just the right thing for raising chickens and watermelons. It never snows, so you don't need no clothes, such as the people wear here. And who know, but what you can get a few franchises from the king to start street cars electric lights, and saloons surrounding. You've
4: fine, big ideas, but suppose the natives suddenly don't take kindly to the new order of things and refuse to be electric lighted, salooned, and otherwise fixed upon with blessings of civilization. Suppose they look upon you as intruders, and instead of receiving you with open arms, make
3: war on you. If it comes to that, we'll arrange with them gentlemen, like Uncle Sam did with the Indians. How is that? Kicking the stuffing out of them and putting them on a reservation.
4: Hello, reader. I've got a registered letter for you. I was just in the office, but didn't want to leave it. I suppose you and Mose were having one of your regulation arguments about Dahomey. <laughs> by the by, when does the colonization society leave for Dahomey? Mm-mm. They don't go direct from here. Dahomey. They leave here tomorrow for Gatorville, Florida, where they join the main body. I don't know when they start for Dahomey. Yeah, I may go along myself, but the
3: fact of the matter is they are in session in my office at this moment. Just wait a minute, Sandfield. I forgot to give you this letter. It's for my brother. You know he's the fountainhead of this whole scheme to go to Dahomey is the only thing we ever did agree on. Suppress the first argument i missed since I've been a member of the society. Well, reader, if you do go to
4: Dahomey, accept my best wishes for success.
0: So long! So AJ, if you could talk us through when we're looking at this play, what are we pulling from? So what we're looking at are the extant versions
5: of the the uh, libretto, and w- so one of the one of the versions was copyrighted in the USA or in the U.S., and then the other version was copyrighted um, in London because the show the show went to London after it played Broadway, and in and, and it was a runaway hit in London. Of of course, um, I'm sure that some somebody might have another version of *In Dahomey* in their basement somewhere. Someone had, you know, their great grandparents who did the show, so there could be other versions of the script um, floating around. But, but it's it's very interesting because in thinking about um, this this whole podcast series and um, black musical theater. I think about the technology that was available back then in terms of reproducing um, these scripts. And I wonder how how easy would it have been for um, all of these copies of the libretto to be circulating in an era where we didn't have access to the technology that we have now in terms of reproducing things.
1: Was it copyrighted in both London and the U.S.?
5: Yes, yeah.
1: Okay. And which version of the
0: script is the one that is printed? Is it the um, the 1903 Broadway production? Not all
2: together, sure. It, if you open Black Theater USA, it says 1902. But then it also makes reference to a prologue in Dahomey, which the 1902 version absolutely did not have. I and mean, we know that. So even the dating is a little bit, uh, sketchy, which means that even the script that we look at that doesn't have any third act, and like that script doesn't have a third act. It talks about the pantomime, but it doesn't talk about what the third act is. But you know, it has a whole listing of things that would not have happened until they came back from London. So it's a script that somebody was already writing on. They type them out, and then you have the mimeographs, and then people like write on them. It's just it's hard to keep track of. Um, exactly you know when a script is written or what what that it's hard to follow we can't say
1: for sure I feel like now I care so much about having like those physical papers or wanting to be like we I wish we could have these scripts and but at the time that you're creating it's just like alive in that moment and maybe you're not necessarily thinking about well it's interesting because they were like Williams and Walker were thinking about legacy things and having schools and everything but it's just interesting how how your story gets changed if you don't have physical, tangible evidence of it.
0: Totally, feels like we, a lot of the music of the show kind of has endured, um, um, even though there's not like a definitive version. One of the things
2: that's interesting about this time that is a carryover um, from from, I guess the menstrual show and from shows like that is that um, the idea that the music should stay the same is just not there. You know, you're not gonna have a set musical because you want people to come back again. And the way you get people to come back again is to have new songs, right? So um, so one of the songs that we talk about, and of course, now that we're recording, we're talking, I cannot remember the name of the song. Um, I Wants to be an Actor Lady? I Wants to be an Actor later is is in one version, but maybe not in another version, maybe not in the final version.
0: Crazy for the stage was Carrie Brown. She worked in a dry goods store uptown. Every time a play opened on Broadway, in the gallery Carrie could be found. And that's the same
2: for Burt Williams. He had, I think he had All Going Out and Nothing Coming In was in an earlier draft. You know, so we say this is from Indahomey, but... question is when and they weren't as attached. You know, they didn't think about musicals that way. It's not the original Broadway soundtrack and we know exactly where the dips go and um, and where the chorus comes in. It's not like
1: that. I'm reading Mike Nichols' biography right now and in it he is talking or whoever, the, the person writing it talks about Nichols and May doing their comedy bit on Broadway in what, the, what is that, the 50s or the 60s? And how they had some sketches, but they also had some improv where that would change, or they'd have moments within their script that was like based off of audience reaction, we'll do this or do that. And rereading Indahomey, it was so interesting to see like they were improv artists, and things were, there wasn't anything that was like has to be set in stone. And it's like if the audience doesn't get the joke, Here's some other language to have, which is just, I was like, oh, it's so alive. It, it is taking from the minstrel traditions that they're obviously in, steeped in, that hasn't quite calcified into sometimes what musical theater now <laughs> looks like. And it's just, it's so interesting to me. I would love to see that come back a little bit.
0: And even just thinking about form, like now when when music has like an interplay inside of, of a story, looking at like contemporary musical theaters, it's like, this is what the setup of the text is that is going to launch this person into a moment that they need song more than anything else to continue to tell their story. That's kind of where music lives now inside of musical theater. It's so fascinating in, in here to see it's like, okay, this scene happens and then boom, let's put this um, starring number for a Ada Overton Walker in here, you know, because it's a really, it's a really good number. Looking back now, it feels quite like freeing as a form um, in terms of what that interplay is between the text and the music, you know? I agree. Do you all remember when you first um, learned and or read about Indahomi? I did not so much meet
2: the play as when I, um, I was working for the Davises, and there was a a lot of information on Burt Williams because Mr. Davis had been working at some point on a screenplay about Burt Williams and was kind of fascinated by Burt Williams. I knew about Indahome because i in relation to Williams' early career. I did not really understand the revelation that was Burt Williams and George Walker. It's this partnership and, and being part of this community and not outside of it. We don't get to, to meet Burt Williams that way much. Not just part of Williams and Walker, not just part of a, of a partnership, but part of the Williams and Walker company, which grows out of their commitment to Black art, to Black theater, to opening their flat and having everybody pile in, just that, that intermingling, which, um, which goes away later, but is such an
0: important part of their beginnings. How about you, Dominique? Do you remember your first encounter with this piece?
6: Yeah, I read it for the first time when I was still in college, uh, back when I wanted to be an actor. And I was doing an independent study that was trying to understand and like ask what Black acting methods were outside of like Stanislavski and those other people whose names have you know or slipped my mind um, and just what it meant to be like what was black performance and i my my professor at the time was like we kind of have to start with minstrelsy we kind of have to start with this area we kind of have to start with these conversations and so we read into homey and i very quickly was like i don't think i like this I understand why historically it's an important play. I understand why we talk about it. I understand it's necessity. This is not really doing a whole lot for me. And so it was really interesting to um, reread it again and to uh, embrace those feelings. Say more oh it's just like what what's happening <laughs> the thing, i feel like it's a it's a balloon and like if you just poke it just a little bit too hard it completely ruptures and falls apart which is interesting right like on a thematic level that it's it's made uh so loosely that it falls apart but the thing i think i'm most interested in in is like why not necessarily we're talking about it i understand why we're talking about it why people are still doing it and what the impetus is for like, I think especially directors and choreographers to want to tackle this today. Like, I'd love to, to be able to talk to those folks. It's like, what is the thing in here that really interests you? Is it the colonialism? Is it like the, what? what is the draw for for folks It's so interesting?
5: Well, I, I think um, to what you were saying, Dominique, I think that the, the original da- in Dahomey, there are a lot of ideas that are embedded that I think still resonate now. We have colonialism. We have black people um, talking about uh, repatriating to Africa. There's a lot of satire um, in the musical about uh, you know black upper mobility. <laughs> we have in the first scene of the musical um, this whole um, stump scene that comes right out of minstrelsy, which is making fun of these products that are still in the market that um, that are marketed to black people to assimilate. In terms of you know skin bleaching and hair straighteners, so we're still having the same conversations uh, over over uh, well over a hundred years later. So, it's, so there are a lot of nested dolls and, and and a lot of double and a lot of double entendres and um, slapstick. And there's you know like there's a lot of play on words. There's a lot of um, there's ethnic humor there, and I think there's humor that was targeted to um, specifically black audiences. So there was a lot of interplay and um, a lot of meta, what they now call meta theatrics um, in in the play. So I, I think it's a rich site for people to, to investigate and explore because there were so many ideas that, the, that Williams and Walker were trying to put on stage that it's, it's such a rich body of material that. Um, I could totally see why it's still a viable thing to do, and I think we're now really beginning to get the chance to to to, lo- to look at all this material that was created by Black artists back in the day, and then really look at it from a twenty first century lens, which I think is such a rich, you know, um, it's very generative.
2: I would agree with that. I especially when you start talking about things like the opening, it opens with this this Medicine Show. Some speech that is, you know, clearly drawing on its roots, but we could do a comparison of that to all of the Jerry Curl jokes from coming coming to America. They're trying to appeal to two audiences at the same time because this was a segregated audience in New York. You know, you don't have to go south to have your segregated audience. This was a segregated audience on Broadway. And the laughter came in different moments. And there were things that were just cracking up. The Black audience and the white people were going, huh? I don't know what that is, which we're still doing. You know, how do you tell a story that is not leaving out your your home audience? But then there are some things that are very foreign to us in this script because we don't really know uh, what it's coming from. We don't know the context because it, it is a play that I think is is talking
1: to its time, is talking to its particular audience. It's interesting thinking of particular audience and the generational stories that are told, I suppose. Like I'm just imagining what it is in one piece and maybe it (laughs) it speaks to the lack of cohesion sometimes because there's a lot of MacGuffins all over the place in this too. But, you know, the fact that you have two characters who are debating whether or not to call this white man master. And then you have sometimes Ada Overton Walker singing the Vassar Girl song, as opposed to I Wants to Be an Actor Lady, which is all about, I mean, based off of, supposedly, of this light-skinned black woman potentially passing and going to Vassar, this all-girls school, which would have been in the news. And those are two completely different experiences going on, and two completely different audiences that they're tapping into. And the fact that they are literally juxtaposed right next to each other is just really interesting to me all of the elements that it's trying to cover in a very short amount of time. Okay,
0: so there's this amazing character who has shown up who I didn't know anything about before we got into this, whose name is Sylvester Russell. He was a Black reviewer um, for the Indianapolis Freeman. And he talks about the audience throughout the run of the show in different cities in the U.S. And he talks about how much people were loving the show. But also you're in the presence of George Walker and Burt Williams. And so you're 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 seeing two of the greatest performers do their thing.
7: On Saturday evening, September 3rd, I was present at an evening performance of In Dahomey, a new version of their popular musical comedy, and found it to be very much to my liking, the improvements in the play having been in direct harmony with my sharp criticism of last season's deficiencies. The new Dahomey, booked by Jesse Shipp, Lyrics by Alex Rogers and music by Will Merriam Cook and James Vaughn is now in superior order. The curtain first rises on a prologue. The scene is laid in Dahomey, but it serves to open the play as it should do in the climb of its namesake. The prologue is, is interspersed with bright, catchy music and a drill that pleases the eye. With all things reasonably considered... The present triumph of Mr. Williams offers me an opportunity to compare his position and the place occupied by Bob Cole. Mr. Cole, by right of education, musical and literary attainment, his knowledge as a stage producer, as well as his ability as a comedian, the first legitimate one, rate him as the foremost comedian of his race. But as a genuine Negro comedian, Bert A. Williams, is superior to all of every race. He takes his place then, notably today, as the greatest Negro character dialect comedian in the world. The women, with but few exceptions of vanity and a pink spot on Lottie Williams's face, all succeeded in showing their true color. The appearances of some darker women in the chorus also added to the genuine sentiment of true Negro comedy and completely destroyed the prejudice which formerly existed in the peanut gallery. The Black Patty Company still has the greatest singing chorus on record, but when it comes to comedy capers... Williams and Walker have now matured at a rate that places them above all other entertainers of their race. To this, I will assert that I never considered Williams and Walker, nor their company, excepting Mrs. Walker, really great until this season.
0: And I was trying to remember, AJ, when you came across um, Sylvester Russell... It was either
5: in the Burt Williams, um, there's a biography by Burt Williams, and I don't remember the author's name, but um, I think Arminda had also um, shared that the scholar, the theater, the, black, um, the theater scholar, Daphne Brooks, so she has a book called Bodies and Descent, and she writes about um, Sylvester Russell's um, reception of Indahome, which included uh, quotes from Sylvester Russell's review of um I, I want to say I, th- I think it was the pre-Broadway um, review because the show debuted in Stanford, and then and and then it and then it went to to Brooklyn, um, it went to Brooklyn, New York, and then I mean I think it made stops along the way, right?
2: It went all over the place. It was I mean it really did. It it went so it it started. They started touring in September. I mean they started production uh, in September of nineteen oh two. And they went to they went to Boston, they went to Brooklyn, and then they went west. So they, you know, they made that whole trek before they came back um, to to do the Broadway opening in 03. So they basically did six months on the road, because I think they opened in February of, of 1903 on Broadway. And then in April, they went to London. And they were in London for eight months and then they came back and did um, like a two or three or four week run on, uh, on Broadway again or in New York somewhere. And then they went throughout the country again, um, you know, with the 1904. They, they toured this thing from 1902 to 1905
0: they were doing in like It's no wonder that like us trying to piece together like what, what the show was. <laughs> Is so difficult, because there there must have been like a hundred different versions of what of what the show was over over the course of those couple of years. and And maybe this is kind of our approach to all the plays that we look at, but it feels like there's kind of two sides to it, right? There's like the interior of the play, like what are the actual events in the play, what's actually happening, but then it feels like there's the the life of the play outside, like what the what the creators were trying to do with the play.
1: I mean, that's the thing that I love the most about I mean, I'm, you know, I always talk about like the Marshall Hotel and how I, I feel like people should talk about that more which I don't even think we talk about enough, but this hotel that was like, oh by this black person in the like the West 50s, where all of these you know, black artists and intellectuals and and you know, the white people who wanted to be cool would like come in and and talk art. It's just it seems like such an exciting creative time, and you think it's happening in like the early 1900s is is like really fascinating. And it feels I just feel a lot of ties to now in the sense of we don't we don't know what this can be. We don't know what this art form is right now, so let's just play and crack it open and let's have Paul Lawrence Dunbar come on in and, and do stuff and, and let's work with Williams and Walker and let's do all of these things. And it feels like, I don't know, coming out of the pandemic that maybe not everybody is having this conversation on a large scale, but in, 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 in small groups, there are people that are making art who are like, okay, we have to come back and it has to look different. So what can it be And actually that's a really exciting time. And as AJ said, it's generative. There's something about it that is like, this can be literally anything we want it to be. So let's just play. And it doesn't become calcified yet. And that's super exciting to me. And there are absolutely moments that do not work, (laughs) but maybe it is that I'm more interested about the making of it than the thing itself. Well,
6: Brittany, it's your point, right? Like what's the most, what's the best part of doing a production? Is it the knife process. you're on exactly?
1: That's to me, it's the process, yeah, which is not the same. Everyone doesn't feel that way, and that's fine. I mean, the,
2: the thing that that kind of um captured me was this, this attempt to incorporate Africa and you know, some part of and 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 to to think about um black Americans' relationship to Africa, what they you know, what 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 they thought about it you know when we think of the american colonization society we think of you know kind of pre-civil war white people trying to figure out how to end slavery by sending all the black people back and you know maybe a couple of richer black people going yeah that sounds like a good idea let's do that when reconstruction fails so horribly why would why would that not be um a possibility in in people's minds i yeah i came to this piece and um, and read something that said, you know, this was about the, this talked about the Turner affair. And I'm like, what the hell is the Turner affair? I don't even know what that is. So, you know, and, and then you go, you know, follow your little rabbit hole into Henry McNeil Turner and discover, you know, this guy who was uh, a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, which was a, a big deal, you know, who was um, one of the earlier, early proponents of female clergy. Who was one of the early proponents of reparations, and and also of land black people, particularly in the South, just get out of here? Because what does this country have for you, jack shit? There's nothing here but um, but you know, but a denial of your rights. And the best way to um, to get around it is to get out. And so you know, a lot of this plot is in fact based on. On this man, you know, this, the 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 guy who responds—it's not Cicero, it's the other light—but um, in the first act, who who is very upset with these people for buying, you know, for for buying up these hair straighteners and skin lighteners. Turner had no patience for black people who did not love themselves. None, none.
8: When I was a United States chaplain appointed by President Lincoln. 10,000 balls were sent whizzing around my head. But God protected me. And only God has enabled me to live since amid mobs and Ku Klux. And not because the nation I tried to defend when it was on the verge of being torn to pieces offers my person any protection. Yes, I favor immigration for my race. Let them leave a cruel and ungrateful nation like this. I honor your ancestors for leaving oppression and coming to a country where they could be men. And I advise my race to do likewise. And if that makes me an old fool and a mischief maker, thank God for the honor of being a fool. I am a fool and mischief maker because I am not willing for my race to sit down and quietly be murdered in every conceivable form and for the nation to say well done by its silence. A fool because a savage country can outrage and murder my race in every manner. And I am not willing to hold my tongue while it is being done.
5: If you look at the project that Williams and Walker and the company were trying to do. I, I have. I mean, it's it, it's very ambitious and it, surprisingly. I I'm wondering. So they wanted to create a series of musical of um, musicals, original musicals for commercial theater with all black creative teams. Like that's not even happening now. I mean, there is work that's being created, but we're getting a lot of uh, jukebox musicals uh, like Motown and, and then Soul Train. But this. Williams and Walker was saying, I want to create, you know, original books that, um, original stories and people, like, it doesn't seem like they're a group of produ- Black producers who are being galvanized to say, I want to bring original musical theater pieces to Broadway now, um, you know, so it's, it's a very interesting conversation to look at how, you know, how advanced and how um, forward thinking they were, you know, notwithstanding the problem in the material, but, if you, you know if, if we look at this hundred years later we, we can say why you know why isn't there someone doing that sort of same work that Williams and Walker are doing There are black producers um, who, who are in commercial theater now but where is this where is the conversation around bringing original plays and or musicals to Broadway um, and, and not have to be filtered through
6: the white gaze of, of, of white producers? or white creative team. Or of white people's text, right? Like in the case of the Williams, right? Like whose words are you saying? Whose words are you putting in the mouths of black actors and asking them to say?
2: And that they're not alone. That at the same time, Williams and Walker are, you know, doing this. You also have Cole. You also have Bob Cole, um, who at the time of Dahomey, has taken a little break, but who started, who, who started it off In New York with Trip to Coontown, and then got to, and then later with the second Johnson set with the Shoe Fly Regiment and with Red Moon, which were much more, um, I think, developed pieces, but also struggled when we were trying to figure out what what play we were going to be looking for. Uh, Cole and Johnson mounted a serious challenge. Um, We had issues finding scripts. Um, but also, and that might have been partly pandemic, we had issues finding scripts, but I think also he had a, a bigger target on his back um, because of the Black Patty producers. And, you know, he, he managed to um, to pull off a lot, even while dealing with active hostility. You know, there was a hostility uh, with them that, that, that Williams and Walker, I think, did not face in the same way. And also Walker was just a great businessman and managed you know these things.
5: I do want to say but Williams and Walker still got caught in the vortex of the white theater syndicate because I remember reading and doing research for this episode that um, they had, Williams and Walker wound up suing I don't know was it like the theater the white theater syndicate It was um, Erlinger and somebody else. I know that they were also they were saying that this group of white syndicates, was keeping them out of theaters in the Times Square district and making them go to the 50s. So there was a whole court case. So they weren't, you know, completely, um, you know, outside of that. (laughs) Like you really couldn't escape the machine. And, you know, we can still see vestiges of, you know, this, you know, now in in, in the 21st century. Mm. See,
1: That's what I have a question about. And I'm curious what you all think, because as you said away before, there's a lot of breaking of form that happens within this piece or within this time period where people are, you know, making that transition as to like, what is minstrelsy? What is vaudeville? What is music theater? What do, and playing with the structure and ragtime and all of these things, it reminds me a lot of jazz, right? It reminds me of like a very controlled chaos in a way that is exciting of, of breaking down forms. And when I think about this with the 21st century lens, I do think, oh, well, minstrelsy seems like such a stifling form, obviously. Like, I think, oh, these Black artists working in this form, that must have been terrible. Obviously, the art we're making now is more creative or revolutionary or whatever. But when I look at this episode and think about now, I'm like, is that is that necessarily true? Like how many artists, because this is mainstream. This piece, like this piece is popular. So it's not like in some backwoods, what, uh, that sounds so, that sounds so diminishing, but it's not like, you know, where everybody is not seeing it. It's very, it's popular and it's a little chaotic and it's a little messy and it's like trying new things and it's out in the mainstream. And I'm, I'm just thinking, is that happening with, black art in the same way now in the 21st century? And even what AJ is saying about white, like the, the, the fight with white commercialism, are there a lot, I, I don't know, are there a lot of black, like how much of it is, how, how much are people, what risks are being taken now in the commercial realm that black people are making? How many people are really are really going at it in that same way? How much form is being actually broken in that way?
5: I mean, I think to, to your question, uh, Brittany, there are people who probably will say that they're doing that. And I can think of some names, but I don't want to go down another rabbit hole. But that certainly is, you know, a conversation because in... in, in in our um, pre-planning stages for the, for this act. We talked about the work that Tyler Perry is doing. So that's a whole nother conversation. I think that there are people who, who can make a claim to that, but you know, yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but to your point, I do think that there are people out there who can who say, oh, yes, you know, I'm doing that in my artwork. Absolutely.
6: You know, Brittany, I feel like to your point and to your question, one thing that I feel like I encounter a lot, right, is people who say that they're doing that thing. But what they actually mean is that they are just black. Right. Like they're talking they're talking about their their art being genre bending or experimental. And oftentimes what you get is like, oh, this is a table drama, but with black people, right? And that seems to be the extent of the sort of, their idea of what revolutionary art can be, right? When we know that there are people currently, when there are people, right? Like in the time they're talking about pushing it. And I think that, you know, um, Professor Ayana talked about this a little bit when we first interviewed her. Um, with that question she posed that I haven't been able to stop thinking about, which is, right, Tyler Perry must believe that Black people have control over what they believe are funny. And I think that that's like a very interesting idea, because I think that in the same way that the Black body um, is fungible, can be used for any purpose, anytime, anywhere the black mind occupies a similar space, right? And when you start to, when you begin this process of making art, and I think even just being someone who exists in white institutions, if you like that sort of thing, what you get tricked into thinking is that sometimes being black is just enough right that just being a black person in a white space is the sort of be-all end-all of what a revolutionary politic can be and then like you're black in a white space but like are you replicating the same types of policing the same types of violences that are being enacted on you to other black people right and i think that art art happens a lot in the same way where you where when people you write the play that you think is most easily going to be produced and you just keep writing those right because it's because of the way capitalism works the way that um anti-blackness and white supremacy function hand in hand you start to i think you you get to this place where it's like oh i'm just writing this so it gets produced i'm just writing this so it can teach generally white people a lesson there's a play going uh to broadway where the playwright admits that was the entire impetus behind the play right um And I think that until we can not like there are certainly people who are doing something else. I think what to send up when it goes down is an example of that. Right. By Alicia Harris. Um, But I think that oftentimes what you're seeing on a commercial front are the things that are safe, things that are the most easily producible, because it is never just about the art. Right. It becomes like what is digestible? What do the people who are coming to the coming to broadway which i kind of think we should just move on from at this point but you know so what do these audiences need what's going to get someone from a family in texas to come see this play as opposed to really i think thinking through this whole regional model and the way it exists what do the people in texas need right everybody don't need to see i love it but everyone doesn't need to come see uh the temptations right there are things that can be made locally that can be made um, organically that might be, be, that not even might be, that are going to be better than what we're seeing time and time again on a Broadway stage. Because what does Broadway have the space for? A specific type of musical and like a specific type of play. And one anomaly, I think, pro- like, right, like right, I feel like we get one anomaly every so often, that anomaly proves the rule, right? And so I feel like it's, like, it's a very complicated question, especially when we think about what Broadway is today that it didn't used to be um, it's a capitalist death trap, <laughs> like, and that's, that's being, like, very nice about it, right, and so what do you get in those capitalist death traps? Well, you get replications of the same thing over and over again, and then you get someone looking in your face who loves Broadway and is, like, capitalism breeds innovation.
1: Okay, this is interesting, this is, missed. obviously, so many wonderful things that you just said, and as a personal anecdote that's making me think of this, right, I'm, as you all know, starting this new job that's going into TV. And I had conversations all week with people being like, well, you have to get, you're doing this. So you have to be incorporated and you have to get a business manager and you have to get a publicist. These are just things you have to do. These are things that you do. And I will say also all of these people saying these things to me are white. You know what I mean? So that that's also part of the, uh, the, uh, dynamic that's happening. I've never done this before. And so I'll, I'll, it, it's hard to be like, well, I guess I, I don't know this. I guess I have, Is there are these things I have to do? And then laying down at night and being like, wait, what does that mean I have to do it? And what does that mean to have like, so, so, because it's been done, because what, these white institutions, because all of these other people found success in it. So if I want to find, you know, it's having that constant battle of what does it mean to have to do something? What does it mean to say that this is the system that's in place? If you want to operate, period, you have to operate within the system. All of these questions and looking at this play, even as looking at this whole black minstrelsy, all of it, thinking about what Broadway means back then, thinking about what it means to be a black artist back then. It's just putting more context of being like, you don't have to, there's no should. Like should is something that just needs to be taken out of the vocabulary as much as possible, especially when these systems aren't in place for you for us. Uh,
0: The thing I would add to the brilliant things you and Dominique are both saying is, I I think this is a thing that's so captivating about, um, Williams and Walker and all of their kind of compatriots. It's actually two different questions. Are these things actually being created? And then what are the things that are being produced, right? The artists on the ground, there's so many incredible, magnificent artists who are attempting to make great work. However, there is this pull into kind of like the illusion of the larger of the larger system that is very individual as well right it's like as Dominique is saying you're the uh, you're you know you know you're the single black playwright inside your MFA writing program and so then your purpose and function becomes a very different thing these guys are talking about how do we build ourselves a community where we can make our own rules where we can say these are our ambitions and then actually build towards what those ambitions are and actually, continue to harness other people around them to break through what the uh, what the kind of larger illusion of the system is to the to the point that they were you know able to kind of create this piece that thankfully we're able to look and see what they've done so i feel like there's two parts of it there's both the what's the impulse of the artist There's what's the impulse of the capitalist theater system. And then there's also what does it mean to operate as an individual versus operating as a community? These guys were building an army.
1: And what does it mean, though, that this all went away? Do you know what I mean? Because we talk about the fact that, st- that all of these initiatives, all of these things, all of a sudden there was nothing that was being created after a while. So what was that also?
2: I would say the caveat, these were things that were not being created on Broadway. I mean, they were, that, that, that were no longer making it to Broadway. We were getting, what we were getting was, um, we were getting the, the beginning of a circuit. I mean, there was the beginning of a of a black touring circuit, which eventually became the TOBA <laughs> circuit. Um, so there was so there was work. Like there was some work in Chicago. There was some work. There was work being done, but not not to scale, right? And you still had um, these people creating and inspiring in ways that we you know don't always see inspiring the Harlem Renaissance, you know, but, but in the, in the retreat, maybe it happens even if George Walker doesn't die, but, um, but it hadn't yet, (laughs) you know, but it it takes a lot, It, it takes so many factors to be able to knock down that wall that even a small, even, even, you know, a first layer of, of wiping off knocks it down, but not out, right? we were beginning to break through on this stage at, you know, in in a very large way in New York and then um, on Broadway, which in itself was kind of a new thing. Right. But we were beginning to break through on a large level. And then that is gone for at least a decade and then gone again for, you know, quite some time. Um, then yes, that's definitely, it's definitely an elegy. It's definitely, you know, an era that died down, but it that, that got banked, but, you know, fires that are banked are, are are still, are not dead, right? Is that right? Is that true? Or did I just mess that metaphor up? Anyway.
1: <laughs> what were you going to say, Dominique?
6: Oh, I'm just thinking about, right, the linkage that you're pointing to about like w- the disappearance, right? Um, the, the disappearance of these things. And similarly thinking about, when you start to, like years later, um, which might be a good podcast episode one of these days, um, the sort of disappearance, right, of black theaters as physical spaces, right? And, and the, the um, uh, Sadia Hartman, cause y'all know what this is, um, has this quote where she talks about uh, the black feminist tradition exists to be rediscovered, right? And that so often seems like what we're having to deal with is black I think Black anything, period, <laughs> but because of the nicheness of theater, Black theater artists and practitioners so specifically, of like, how do we how do we maintain this legacy? And maybe more importantly, how does this legacy maintain itself, even when we're not able to see it? How does it go underground? How does it go underwater? And how do we discover it again, years later, right? Um, I think it's such a the, the sort of the, the disappearance of black theater is such an interesting conversation to have and it feels so there is I feel like you can just it's like we can go any time period we want right and it's like black people doing X it disappears um and how do we uncover that but also make sure the disappearing act stops
1: it's kind of like the odyssey in that way it's like take taking that thank you so much taking us. You know what I mean, though. But it's like you take you, you you're taking that journey, and there's all of these 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 people. Everything is trying to stop it or, or to change it into something else, change it into what they want it to be, what works for them, and to hold on to that the entire time to, to take that torch to the next generation and still have it be the, the fire that you created way back that's, that's a really hard ask. And then to do that and like Harriet Tubman it and bring everybody with you, that's another journey. Like that, there's so many journeys to do that we're, that we're being asked to do. It's hard. All to say, it's a lot of work.
6: And just to speak on Harriet Tubman, don't forget that she also shot some people. And I think that that is is also equally as important to hold, right? She she at least threatened. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, that's what it is. And I feel like that's where we are. And like I keep thinking about your question, Brittany. It feels like we are in this period where there are so many people who you just feel like want to try new things. There are so many artists, so many writers, so many directors, so many actors who want to be asking new questions um, but have been disciplined their entire careers, right? Because again, what did Hartman tell us? The whip didn't disappear, it was internalized. How you get disciplined into fighting against the things that you know might save your life right? Um, Especially when the the things that might save your life are going to give you less money than the things that continue to kill you.
1: Yes. And and how easy it is to convince yourself to become an individualistic, egoistic, capitalistic individual, like a person, especially being a black person to be like, well, I got mine. I got like, that was enough work. Just that was enough. Okay. So let me convince myself or let other people tell me it's like the OJ, saying, I'm not Black, right? Let me, j- uh, so that I can just survive in this world because it's hard enough. It's really hard to continually bat down those walls and bat down that, um that like reinforcement, the negative reinforcement of you're now in our sphere, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to question that anymore.
0: To me, that feels like one of the actually very reasons to, The looking, the the investigation into the play is actually causing an an investigation into a time and into a time that's about an investigation to a way of thinking about the world that you live in and who you are in relationship to other people. That feels like that's part of of what Indomie is, you know, Um, it's an invitation into um, understanding what these people were trying to build. Does anybody have any final thoughts that they want to get in before we close out for the afternoon? So
2: um, Ossie Davis gave a speech before the Congressional Black Caucus as it was formed in 1971. And um, the theme of the speech was, it's not the man, it's the plan. And it came after a wave of, you know, of assassinations and trying to figure, and and regroupings and, you know, leaders who had fallen or, 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 you know, leaders who had fallen. And the idea was that, you know, you, you can't trust in, you know, you can't put your faith in, in, in the one person, in the one visionary, in the one thing. You have to, as a community, have an idea of what your goals are. And I'm thinking about this in terms of George Walker. I'm thinking about this in terms of Bob Cole. I'm thinking about how often, you know, or August Wilson, or, you know, you know, um, or what he came or, you know, what is it to, to have so much of, um, of the thing that keeps you going residing in a person, a person's vision, a person's, one person's ability with Walker? I mean, th- there was a group, but who had the vision for what it was supposed to be? It's not that um, Bert Williams just abandoned it. He, he didn't know how to keep it going. He didn't know how to keep it going. And so when everybody has a position, you have to have uh, people who know what that position is, people who know how to play that position, people who know, um, I think about this in terms of classics, but that's a different conversation. But you know, when it's important um, to have um, people in on the plan, people in on the vision for, uh, for politics and for art and for, you know, particularly, you know, for, for, for all things black um, to have, to have that community that is not around the person with the vision, but the vision has to be held. It has to be held. And then you have to, because, because things happen and life happens and death happens um, and you have to figure out how to move forward.
0: AJ, do you have any final final thoughts?
5: I think that, the, I mean, I keep saying this, but there's so many ripples um, or, or the ripple effect of what, of looking at the Williams and Walker, you know, Cole and Johnson and all these other artists. And we are still feeling the ripples of the work that that generation was doing way back when. And, and we're still asking the same questions about legacy and leadership and succession I think you know all these conversations you know come up. I do think that, that it, it's a great takeaway. I'm just fascinated again at, at, by the um, the project that Williams and Walker were trying to do, and how and how we how and how we can tie so many things back to like that was an that was a vehicle that that, that they used then that, that we could tie you know. Um, Tracks to today, which is really fascinating because, you know, black artists, (laughs) we know that black art, you know, is timeless and it's always relevant. And so this is a good opportunity to remind ourselves of how brilliant we are as creators and as originators and and how we we come up with things that then get appropriated and taken and stolen from us. But it's just, it's an example of of looking back at how forward thinking and innovative um, the work was back then and how it's still. Um, you know, even though, even though like if you, if someone said, if you poke it and it, it falls apart, there's still like the part that falls apart. If you caught that, it's still, um, it's still valuable. Absolutely is.
0: Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end. Thanks so much, everybody. Always amazing talking to you all and, uh, we'll talk soon later. Next week is the final episode of this act. We heard so many wonderful actors in this episode including Tyrone Mitchell Henderson, Russell G. Jones, and Yusef Miller. The scene excerpts were directed by the incredible Timothy Douglas. And please check out the website to see the full list of actors who have contributed their voices over the past five episodes. For more information on Black performance in the era of minstrelsy, please visit theclassics.org. That's T-H-E-C-L-A-S-S-I-X.org, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Classics. This episode was produced by Classics and Theatre for a New Audience. Our sound editors are Twee McCallum and Aubrey Dubé. The theme song was composed by Alfonso Horn, and Swing Along was arranged by Alfonso and performed by him and Matisse Picard. I Wants to Be an Actor Lady was sung by Amber Iman. For full versions of the songs and another excerpt from Indahama, please visit us online. Special thanks to Daryl Waters and Woody King Jr. See you next week.